Hey, it's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. This week, we're debuting a brand new three-part podcast series with Quentin Tarantino and Amy Nicholson called Quentin Tarantino's Feature Presentation. Here's a quick trailer with more info. If you go to Quentin Tarantino's new Beverly Cinema in Los Angeles, you're going to hear that feature presentation song. And when the movie starts, you're going to step in to Quentin Tarantino's brain. If you own a movie, you own a print of a film, it feels like it's your movie. Consequently, it's like if people really like the movie and they go, wow, that movie was terrific. You know, my response was, oh, thank you very much. <laughs> it was like I, I took credit for it because, well, it was my print. So, and, and, I, and I put the whole thing together to show it. So I, I actually felt like they were complimenting me. This is Quentin Tarantino's Feature Presentation, a new three-part podcast miniseries hosted by me, film critic Amy Nicholson of Unspooled and Halloween Unmasked. Before the release of his new film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Quentin and I sat down to talk about five films that he's programmed at the New Beverly, and we wound up talking about his life, his work, and how this movie-crazy kid became a director who defined a generation. Waiting for the lights to go down, and no one knows what to expect. Is this going to be one of those special times? Is it not going to be one of those special times? Is it going to be a forgettable time? The first episode of Quentin Tarantino's feature presentation is out later this week. It is the closest thing to sharing a bucket of popcorn with the man himself. So subscribe now wherever you hear podcasts. I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan and I am an editor at TheRinger.com. Today on The Watch... I was so happy to be joined by Jody Hill, David Gordon Green, and Danny McBride. They are the guys behind The Righteous Gemstones, which is coming on HBO in a couple of weeks. They are the guys behind Eastbound and Down. They are the guys behind Observe and Report and The Legend of a White-Tailed Deer Hunter and Vice Principals and, of course, the Halloween reboot that we spent so much time on The Ringer covering with Amy Nicholson's pod last year. And it was just, like, pretty amazing to see these guys. So... Here's the thing. Danny, David, and Jody have known each other for most of their lives. They went to film school together in North Carolina, which is where they met. Danny and Jody moved out to Los Angeles to make it out here as writers and actors and directors and worked, you know, waiter jobs out here, kind of grinding away. And then they wound up going back home to make The Foot Fist Way, which is... I guess it's almost like they made it in 2005 or 2006 and finally came out in 2006 after making it, I think, in 2003 or five or whatever. And it was uh, kind of like a legendary, immediately cult classic, I would say. Will Ferrell and Adam McKay caught on to it. They helped promote it. And the legend of sort of Danny McBride was born from there. And pretty quickly after that, he wound up going on to be in Tropic Thunder and a bunch of Drillbit Taylor and a bunch of other movies like that. Jody went on to direct Observe and Report with Seth Rogen. I think that came out in 2009. So it's been 10 years from since Observe and Report came out. And then sort of parallel to all that, their buddy David Gordon Green has been one of the most prolific directors in Hollywood for the last 20 years. He started out in 2000 with George Washington, which is this kind of impressionistic Terrence Malick type look at uh, life in the South. Then he made All the Real Girls with Zoe Deschanel. A couple of years later, and since then, has made movies like Pineapple Express and The Sitter and Stronger with Jake Gyllenhaal. 
and done a bunch of TV and directed the Halloween reboot that came out last year. So David has been kind of constantly working and that whole time has been working with Danny and Jody. And they've been making television for HBO too. They've made Eastbound and Down, which is one of me and Andy's longtime favorites. We've talked often about how much, uh, how how funny we found that that show and how much we treasure it and repeat lines from it. I still to this day say, let the boy watch about pretty much anything. And now they're back with Righteous Gemstones. So Righteous Gemstones premieres with on HBO on August 18th. And it's um it's hilarious. I mean, it's it's actually a little bit different than the stuff that they've done before. It kind of reminds me a little bit of Jackie Brown or kind of like out of sight, the sort of Tarantino, Soderbergh, Elmore Leonard stuff from the from the 90s, if only because it takes the crime stuff in this show as seriously as it takes the comedy, which I think is the key to a really great show anyway, if you're going to do something like that, is to sort of treat every part of every genre you're working in with equal respect and equal sincerity. And they did a really good job making a really compelling story while also having Danny McBride, John Goodman, Adam Devine, Edie Patterson, Walton Goggins, a bunch of other people really throwing a hundred right off the mound and like killing it with, with just like amazing, amazing comedy sequences. Dermot Mulroney's also in it. It's about a family of televangelists named the Gemstones. Eli Gemstone, played by John Goodman, is sort of the patriarch. Jesse Gemstone, played by Danny McBride, is the heir apparent. And then his brother and sister are played by Adam Devine from uh, Workaholics and a bunch of other stuff. And Edie Patterson, who you might remember from Vice Principals. And that's the family. And then they are moving in on the territory of a character played by Dermot Mulrooney. And they also have... uh, a brother-in-law, uncle figure, played by Walton Goggins, who plays a character named Baby Billy Freeman, who is essentially like if Ric Flair was a country preacher. It's really amazing. Uh, Gemstones is the third show that they've done for HBO. I was curious about whether or not it really was part of this trilogy of Eastbound Vice Principals and Gemstones. So we talked a little bit about that. We talked a lot about their friendship and the, their creative relationship and what it's like to work both with each other in Charleston where uh, David and Danny live and also go out into Hollywood and make Halloween and make Alien Covenant and make Legend of a Whitetail Deer Hunter in North Carolina like Jody did and yet still always come back to each other to work together on these incredible projects. They're really distinctive. You know, I mean, I think that in this day and age, it's pretty easy to kind of put a lot of pressure on every single show where you're like, what is this show about? What does this show mean? These shows are just sincerely entertaining. And it's kind of a lost art to just make a very funny, very captivating television show that keeps you entertained. And these guys have kind of mastered it. So let's get into my conversation with David Gordon Green, Danny McBride, and Jody Hill. On Monday, I'm going to talk to Kate Nibbs a little bit about Charles Manson in relationship to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And I'll also be talking about Veronica Mars season four, which I've, I've held off on talking about it because I wanted to give people an opportunity to see the entire season before we discussed it on the show. And lots more good stuff. We'll be doing a mailbag episode soon. So if you have questions, hit us up at The Wash Pod on Twitter. Uh, so let's get into my conversation with Danny, Jody, and David. I'm pretty thrilled to be joined by Danny McBride, David Gordon Green, and Jody Hill, who are the minds behind Righteous Gemstones, which is coming out in mid-August. Then they're obviously also the guys behind Eastbound and Down and Vice Principals and so many other things that uh, the Watch Podcast has talked about over the years. It's kind of wild being here with you guys because, so what, George Washington's t- almost 20. We filmed it 20 years ago. Yeah, we uh, Oh, man, that's 20 crazy. Years ago. And then All the Real Girls is 03, and then Foot Fist and 
observe and report or what, like 08 and 09? So oh, 05, we actually shot Foot Fist. Oh, but when yeah. it came out, a couple uh, years after that, Sunday right? and 06. Okay, 06. Yeah. Wow, so it's been 20 years of you guys. That's crazy. Is, that, is it strange to start thinking about being veterans? It is. It's like calming, though, because you're like, well, if it all ended now, at least we did something. <laughs> or when you're just getting off, you're just thinking at any moment it could all be done, and we didn't even get to do what we wanted to do. Yeah. Do you feel like you guys are getting to do what you want to do now still? Like, do you feel like most of the time, like, the with an idea like Righteous Gemstones, that the the creative process and also, like, the development process and getting people to believe in you guys and give you whatever money you need for it has gotten easier or harder or more complicated? I mean, with Gemstones, because it's with HBO and we've, we've worked with them now for over 10 years, I do feel like this was, like— They've always been good about kind of giving us what we what we need for the show, but I really felt like this time they really did step up. I mean, we got the days we needed to shoot it, and they yeah they they trust us. They let us kind of go at it. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to give stuff away about gemstones, but there is a wave pool in the mm-hmm. first episode, there is, yeah. so it's just like they came through with the <laughs> <laughs> practical effects. It seems like. Um, let's talk a little bit about this show in particular because uh, I think maybe it's because. We're doing Tarantino Week on the site, and we've been talking a lot about him, so I have him on the brain a little bit. But I felt like when I was watching the first few episodes of Gemstones, it felt kind of Elmore Leonardy. It kind of mm. felt kind of like under low key, like it's obviously very funny, but the the caper aspects and the crime aspects and these people who were kind of screwing each other over, over and over again, felt like a really like fun throwback to. Some of the good like crime movies we used to get in the, like the nineties and stuff like that. I was just wondering if that might be something you guys were kicking around when you were doing it, or did it just really emerge as like the third part of this trilogy of shows that you've made for HBO? You know, I don't know if that was a direct influence, but I mean, I definitely, when it comes to stuff that involves crime or violence, I definitely think there's more comedy in like the inept, grounded version of that, you know, where somebody's not good at committing crimes. I just feel like it's inherently like more relatable. Yeah. You know, like if I was going to go beat someone's ass for money, you know, and I had to align my friends, you know, you would think about stupid stuff of like, let's all use the same weapon or let's all. <laughs> <laughs> Do you guys do you guys feel that way at all going into it? Like, was there something that you wanted to do differently on this that you felt like okay, Vice Principles is own thing? Even even in terms of like the way you shot it or the way the t- tones you were looking for. I mean, I, I think uh, it's always fun to combine different stuff, and um, I think the longer we've been doing this, the more we are you know try to do that and everything. So like, um, we've always sort of like mixed darkness with mm-hmm. our comedy, right? So then. Anytime we can bring in, like, more genres, that seems like a cool thing. It's almost like comedy is the thing that gets you to buy your ticket. You yeah. know, you, like, you see the trailer, and it's, oh, that's funny and stuff. And then when you get in there, you realize, oh, this is, like, really sad. Yeah. Or this is, <laughs> yeah. like, kind of scary. Or this is— <laughs> I, mean, I remember when I saw the pilot that Danny directed for the show, and I'm trying to wrap my head around how we're going to approach the series. My thought is— uh, it was my reference points were The Godfather and the TV show Dallas. So, <laughs> and, and it, so I don't go to, you know, to funny when I, you know, yeah. I, I think it's a really funny show. But that's casting, timing, kind of the details and nuances and the jokes within the show. But in terms of a broad canvas, it feels pretty epic. It's a huge family tale. I mean, it, it, I look at this and you know the hope is it continues over years and it's this family saga. You know? Yeah. See, one of the things that's really cool about this show is that without divulging too many details about the plot aside from what's like obviously in the trailer it seems like you guys had like a really cool 
uh, sandbox to play in, like with the shoots and like the mansions, the malls, like the like even just like the suburban kind of like Mayu that you guys are working in. Like, mm-hmm. so is this shot in Charleston? It is. It's all shot around Charleston, and you know the the mega church is the North Charleston Coliseum, and uh, you know that's just one of the benefits of like you know positioning ourselves in a place like Charleston, you know. You see a big location like that Coliseum, and you're like, I wonder if we could get that. You know, you actually <laughs> can. Where I feel like if we were to shoot that show in Los Angeles, we might get the Staples Center for like three minutes. Maybe. Yeah, not <laughs> not two weeks. <laughs> you could get somebody like walking past the Magic Johnson statue, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then be like, wrap this. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about Charleston because Danny, there was something you said to Rolling Stone a few years ago about. He said, being around people that have nothing to do with film gives me ideas. I can walk down the street and get an idea for something that I know is unique to here. And I was wondering what, for you, for you guys, how Gemstones is sort of rooted in that. Is this because televangelism and, and mega churches and stuff are just a lot more common down there, or at least you're like more engaged with them on a day-to-day basis? And religion plays a much bigger part in like the community down there like what, what was it about Charleston that kind of inspired this you know I mean it, it is like coming from I'd lived here in LA for 20 years so going there and you're know, turning on the radio station and like every other channel is you know down there is like a religious station or you could drive outside of the outside of the downtown and get into the sticks and there's nothing out there except a church on every corner yeah and it uh yeah it just kind of reminded me about how what an important part religion does play in a lot of people's lives even though I didn't see it much here when I was in Los Angeles that, uh, you know, I think because I went to church when I was a kid and then grew up, I kind of assumed that everyone was on the same wavelength I was, that, like, oh, church is something you used to do. And it was, like, eye-opening to be like, no, church is something that still tons and tons of people still do. And uh, so it made me curious about, like, well, what does church look like now compared mm-hmm. to what it was like when I was a kid? And and then you start kind of seeing how church has evolved. You know, it's not just sitting in a pew in a, you know, in a one-room church. It's, you know, these things have adapted and adjusted for the, for the times and have tried to be exciting or entertaining to kind of bring in more and more people. Yeah. And so the idea of something like church evolving just, I don't know, it seemed like an interesting world. It seemed like something was ripe there and uh, yeah, sort of just kind of setting the story in that world. So I think Charleston played a part in it in that in the f- sense that it's just religion is so prevalent there that it just made me think about religion a little bit more. Yeah. David, has, has Charleston changed your your eye at all, like your director's eye as, as, as the last couple of years living down there impacted you, you know, at all? I've actually never lived in L.A. or New York or where. Oh, okay. So I've always lived, uh, you know, I moved from... We you know we went to film school together in North Carolina and Winston Salem. Yeah, we had a really cool piece on on your alma mater on the on yeah. the site a couple of years ago. Yeah, and then we moved from there to Savannah, Georgia, then to Louisiana, and then to uh, Austin, Texas, and now now Charleston. So it, it's not anything radical in that yeah. in that way. Just because I think I always just kind of go someplace comfortable to recalibrate after the chaos of a production or something. And it's nice that we can bring work to where we live now, and that's pretty cool. We, for you, Jody, like you're from the south, but you're like living out in LA. Do when you go back to work and on stuff, whether it's vice principals or working on a movie, and like, because I, I was last time I saw Whitetail at South by, and oh, cool. you were kind of like still like, man, it was really fucking winter out in yeah. North Carolina yeah, on the mountain. Not, yeah, do you almost feel like you have like an outsider's perspective on it now? Um, no, you know, it's just I'm more comfortable around models and cocaine. You know? <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, sort of right. what I've grown they to have love. That Charleston, here. Dude. What are yeah. you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, no uh, 
no, I mean, I still, I go back there all the time. Like everything we've shot has been in, um, you know, like we sh- used to shoot uh, eastbound and down in Wilmington, North Carolina. And then we shoot this in Charleston. So I don't know. I sort of feel like um, I'm still from there. I just happen to live out here. Yeah. You know? The thing I really like about this show is that the religion is very matter of fact. Like you're never like, it's not like a show about religion as much as it's a show about these people who are maybe using religion to make themselves better off, which is, but it's cool because it's not like an essay about whether or not we should be believers at this time period. Did you guys, like, was there like any ground rules you guys set for yourselves going into the writing and the production of the show where you're like, let's like, let's like make sure we're playing within these lines kind of. Yeah, that was a, that was kind of my, I was really looking at like religion, like when comedies have taken on religion before. And I found a lot of them like just didn't have what it takes to be classics. Like I was like, you know, a lot of them are, are kind of boring. I feel like the comedy doesn't work in them. And I was kind of wondering why. And the more I watch them, like, oh, it's because they're making fun of people for what they believe in, yeah. which just feels a little obnoxious, you know? What are the, I'm trying to think of, like, what are the classic religion comedies? There, 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 there's really not many of them. <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's, like, like, there's, like, Leap of Faith, Faith and right? Holy Man and there's all these things. There's a movie that, that Ed Norton directed, right? Life of Brian. Oh, yeah, the Keeping the Faith. Life Keeping of Brian faith. is probably, I think, probably the most classic of all religious comedies, I would think. <laughs> yeah. 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 They were saying that when we were being interviewed, they were just like, We've seen this before on screen. I was just like, have we? When, like, yeah, I, mean, when, yeah. like, <laughs> I think we've seen a lot of priests, but it's like, it's yeah, mostly like yeah. the mission and stuff right, like yeah. that. It's yeah. not like you're like, um, the mission's a laugh yeah. riot. Yeah. That could be season Send like us. four of yeah. Gemstones, though. It's totally. like maybe like well, you guys yeah. Yeah. <laughs> could get the Ennio Morricone freeze. Yeah, exactly. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to talk a little bit, you know, as we were sort of beginning, the idea of you guys and your creative partnership and I know for me, like what, like just growing up, it's almost been like kind of really cool to track you guys because it feels like I, like you guys are like like me and my friends. Like we loved movies, we loved it. we loved talking about it. They are such a huge point of like fascination for us. But I'm always fascinated when a group dynamic like how does like creative duties get broken up? Because I think that like obviously you see credits at the end and you're like well that guy is the executive producer so it must have mean he executive produced this but how, how does it work like when you guys write gemstones up on a whiteboard or somebody walks into the office and is like i think we should do something about mega churches like how do you guys start divvying up responsibilities is it just free-flowing you know i think the, the way we you know i almost feel like in some regards this like partnership started just from the fact that you know, we all went to film school in North Carolina. I feel like we all kind of saw ourselves a little bit as like outsiders in this yeah. industry. And I think even when we start to find success, there was still this level that we were on the fringe of things here. And so I think because of that, you kind of just end up turning to each other for guidance or counsel. If you had an idea for a script, you'd look internally for thoughts on it. And, you know, uh, David made a film right out of school and incorporated all of us in it. And I think it was a good uh I don't know. It was a good example of like, oh, this is possible. We can do this. And so in that regards, David like kind of presi- provided the example. And Jody and I lived in Los Angeles for a few years waiting tables and yeah. doing shit jobs. And, you know, we had this goal of what we wanted to make. But, you know, you don't have people aren't reading your scripts. You don't have the opportunities. And you kind of turn to each other for that guidance. And I think as success came that nature just started to just organically continued of like looking to each other for guidance or counsel. And uh, I think it's just because like we don't really put any rules on it. Like there is when these guys, you know, I, you know, running the writer's room and then these guys come on to direct it. And I never, it's never like I sit them down and say, 
these are the rules of the show. Yeah. You got to do this and you're going to do this. It's like I just ultimately like the alchemy of it all and like what each of these guys want to bring to it. I feel like that's just what the show ends up becoming. I like the idea of uh, I trust their instincts enough. I like the idea of giving them something and then letting them put their spin on it, letting them visualize it how they want to and just go for it. And I think the idea of keeping it going this long is just really because we're not really setting out to do that. It just almost just happens organically. Just happens. You work on other projects and then suddenly you get this opportunity to work with some of your best friends and it just seems like fun to keep doing it. What's it like going out, working on something like Stronger or, you know, doing doing work for other companies or with other groups of people and then coming back to this like kind of home base almost? That's an interesting example because Stronger was the first and only time I said, I want to not work with anyone I know. Okay. So that was a, a deliberate choice to, I don't know, kind of uh, recalibrate everything and, and, and to see what I could learn from other cinematographers and production designers. And, and the only person I brought was my production sound mixer. Okay. And other than that, everybody was new. And and it was interesting because I, I did learn a lot of new perspectives, new approaches, new techniques. I find great value in that. Uh, and I do like to step away and, and, and you know, I, I just did a, a – there's a, a new series coming out on Apple about Emily Dickinson. And, yeah. And it was a, a, a kind of a for-hire job at a lovely group of creative people. And, and I, I was walking into their world and their show, and I'd never done anything like that before. And – uh, and again, it's just an opportunity to, to learn and see that the world's bigger than necessarily our, our insular bubble. But we always have that, that that safety net, that place to go, that creative place to go back to when, you know, it's nice to step away and it's nice to come home. And Jody, when you're like, like, are you sitting around and like you start looking at scripts or you start seeing ideas and you're like, can I, are you like, can I play Levi or like, can, can I get in this? Can, <laughs> no. I, can, I, play, can I play rhythm guitar in the megachurch band? Or? Yeah, no, um... <laughs> Danny asked me to do that. Uh, that was, that was, uh, it was fun. That was a fun thing to do. I mean, usually, I feel like um, a lot of times with us, it's sort of whoever's baby it is. Like this one is definitely Danny's baby. Sure. He's running the writer's room, so David and me will come in and sort of support. Um, but that that happens with like movies that we all do. You know, like if David comes up with a movie and wants, you know, um, you know, everybody to kind of chip in in some way. You know, it sort of becomes like. There's one of us is sort of like maybe the guy whose uh, baby it is, and the rest sort of like I'll, I'll come along. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Uncles. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm the uncle in this one. God damn it! Uh, so I, but I was curious because like I, when I've read stuff about you guys meeting at film school and sort of seeking each other out, it seems like obviously movies were a huge part of like the common language that you guys found between the three of you and. Um, I was curious about how your relationship to movies have changed over the years, especially now that, like, I'm sure some of the veneer is gone because, like, you make them and stuff like that. But, like, are you still, like, huge movie fans in that same way? And is there, or is there something that gets lost over the years when you're, like, constantly working on it and you just, do you just ever want to, like, unplug from that stuff and just watch CSI and not, not think about <laughs> the mechanics of a Ridley Scott movie or something? I, personally, I'm still a big fan. I go yeah. to see movies all the time. And I think that... It's weird. I like uh, went through a phase in film school where the first year or so, once you once I started learning, like, oh, that's how they do that. That's I'm being manipulated when that happens. Yeah. Um, where then it, there was like a year or two where I kind of was like, ah, oh, I don't, you know what I mean? It, it, I wasn't super into all the movies, or there were like maybe my taste just changed. Yeah. But um, ever since I sort of like. Uh, I don't know. I just sort of gave up on that, and now I watch like dumb genre movies, anything really, and um, 
just, I don't know, I kind of can appreciate them for whatever they are trying to be. So, I don't know, I still watch movies all the Dave, time. Dave, you're so prolific. I mean, like, do, are you also still, like, the movie fan you were at, in the late uh, 90s? I, I am. You know, I just bought my tickets for the 7 a.m. Saturday morning Cinerama Dome, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. <laughs> oh, 70 millimeter. That's nice. 7 a.m. Wow. You know, so... Um, <laughs> You know, uh, carbo load I, before that because it's yeah. two forty runtime. I know. So. Well, I get up early and I and I fall asleep in movies that I see later in the day now. Okay. So, uh, so I thought that's a good way to to stay awake. But um, and uh, and I I revisit movies all the time. Actually, in kind of excitement for that, I just rewatched Jackie Brown for the first time since it was in the theater yeah. the other day and blown away by all the things that I don't remember about that movie. Um, it's also like weird to watch it. With some age, and you see like like the little things that maybe when you were younger, like you were like, well, this is cool, but it's not quite like Pulp Fiction, like high energy and stuff. Oh, yeah. it's mm-hmm. totally different. But in, in uh, for my taste, that's what that's what I thought then, and now yeah. I think this is a really mature movie about a, a middle aged couple. <laughs> what a weird choice! To, <laughs> like, how incredible! Um, and, and so yeah, I'm always watching movies, and and I, I find at this age, I strangely go more to kind of popcorn movies and schlocky movies for entertainment because. I think work life can be so overwhelming, and I've got kids now, and that can be, you know, it, it, that finding that balance is really difficult. So I do like to go to the enjoyment of mm-hmm. a fun, to, easy to watch movie more than I used to. So like, you got that seven a.m. Hobbs and Shaw tickets too. <laughs> I, I definitely would. Be there. <laughs> um, but so I, I think you know, whereas uh, if in, in my twenties, I would I would be making fun of me now because right. of the popcorn movies I just I just enjoy. You guys are kind of outliers. Like I mean. So, like, you know, Eastbound and Vice Principals was shot two seasons together, right? Mm-hmm. Eastbound almost felt like one long movie to me anyway. And I've, it remains to be seen like Gemstones. You guys, I, I hope you guys get to make a lot of this. But where's your head at, like, on the, the TV streaming content title wave that we're swimming in? Because it's just, like, I think that it's it's at once it's, like, so fun because you can, there's never not something to watch. But that's also weird that there's never not something to watch because you're just— all, you're like you always feel behind, or you always feel like you're missing out on something. Like, are you guys pretty big TV watchers as well? I mean, whatever "quote unquote" TV is now. I, you know, I, I don't really watch much TV. I mean, I'll I usually will use TV as something just to kind of have noise on the background. Yeah. And a lot of times, it'll just end up being like reality TV or just something kind of mindless, so that I can like tune out. Uh, but I, you know, I do like what I like what TV is now. I like the idea that people are biting off these bigger stories and they can tell them in chapters. And you know, I was feeling for a while just a little pinned in by the structure of feature films. Yeah, and, and especially by the structure of feature films that are like you know studio movies that you know where you have a test audience and things have to like hit certain marks and people have to be at a certain place at a certain point in the middle of the movie. It just felt, especially with comedy, that it was hard to make a story that was sort of unique without having to hit all the generic beats. And I like that television has opened that up, that like, you know, to tackle a five-hour comedy story, it just, you can go in so many other crazy areas that you could never accomplish in an hour-and-a-half comedy. And uh, I like that. I feel like it's kind of, uh, from a writing standpoint, it's definitely, I think, more appealing than just writing a straight script. Sure. Do you uh, do you guys find that, the ha- like, having families and stuff changes, like, the TV that's on at the house a lot? 
Like, I mean, obviously, you're probably not watching. Like, you just have to get up earlier, but you'd be surprised what I show my kids. <laughs> <laughs> are you? Is, are they? Have they like seen Halloween and stuff? You know what? They haven't. But they tell my son is seven. He tells his friends that he's seen Halloween. He's always like, ta- he's always talking about it. But they. What's uh, his version of the plot? Yeah, <laughs> he's he was get for a while was saying he was going to dress up as uh, Mini Michael's uh, Halloweeny. Yeah, that was like his costume. Was going to be like a miniature version of Halloween, Michael Myers. But uh, yeah, I mean, we just you know he. You know what's crazy is they'll watch like YouTube videos of people talking about these movies yes. and they'll act like he knows what the movie's all about. We're counting on that. Here I'm like, don't, I'm like, don't tell me what Halloween's about. I wrote that. <laughs> Dad, did you see this this explainer? You got it all wrong. <laughs> Um, what about you? I mean, you, you've been, you've flitted in and out. You've done like, you know, like Red Oaks. You've, di- you're talking about this, the Dickinson pilot, or did you work on the pilot or was it just the first? The, the, fr- the pilot. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, is that, do you feel like there's like a market difference between the way stuff is getting made now than even like say five or six years ago? Absolutely. And it, you know, it, it is the wild west in, in some degree and, 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 um, and, and people are taking great chances with narratives. There's just, it's, it's kind of overwhelming when you see how many platforms there are and what, what TV is on. I, I honestly don't like the TV on in my house very much. I look at movie theaters as an experience that I can go step away from my like world an and check in. Um, if my kids are around, I don't want to I don't want to watch TV with them very – I mean, every now and then it's fun to show them The Karate Kid or something yeah. cool. Or, or we do a movie night. I'll show them High Noon or um, some or a, a documentary or something. You know, something that they wouldn't be – wouldn't necessarily appeal to them, but the fact that they get to, you know, watch TV for a couple hours is good. But I like to just – get out of there sometimes and go fishing and, you know, go for a bike ride or jump in the ocean. Sure. Jody, you talked about, like, the different muscle that you were using for doing Whitetail and then, like, you wanted to do something different after Vice Principles and, like, try and do – what's the major thing that you have to adjust to? Is it just schedule or is it just, like, a certain, like, specificity of, like, storytelling that you have to do when you're you're kind of switching brains like that? I don't know. To be honest with you, it's not that different to yeah. go between – not as different as I thought when you go between genres. It's really all in the writing. But in terms of uh, – at least how we do it. I don't know. Maybe it's different for other people. But um, and if you're doing like a – like more of a straight drama like that was yeah. um, you know, versus a comedy, um, it seems like the preparation is the same with the actors. Um, I don't think they're shot that much differently. You know, I've, I've done things where like um, – um, you know, somebody will be like, "We don't want to shoot this like a comedy." I've heard that before. Really? From, yeah, from like <laughs> like if you did commercials and stuff, they'll yeah. say things like that. But then, like, it really there's not like a big difference. I mean, unless you're, you know, you're shooting stuff it's that like just sucks. Says that, you know like, what oh, I mean? Okay, well, I'll take the comedy playbook and throw it. Yeah, out. exactly. <laughs> yeah, put on that <laughs> serious like filter. Put my beret on. Right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so the stuff we do, it wasn't that different. I mean, like. um uh, and these guys could probably comment on that with like horror and stuff, but really it's um, comedy. The writing of it is is hard, I think, because you know you just it has to be funny. And yeah, that's all subjective and stuff like that. So with action, you know, if something's action packed, it's you'll know it, but it doesn't have to like like comedy could like tickle somebody differently than it would another person. And I think that that's like where you can drive yourself crazy looking at the the jokes and and um. And trying to integrate a plot right. into that, you it's know, like you're that, like, engineering it almost. Yeah, too much. yeah, I think so. So I don't know. I thought it was cool to stretch a little bit. I kind of want to keep doing that, and I think that's like with this show, the Righteous Gemstones. We get an opportunity to, to do that where it is funny, but like you said, there's a crime aspect to it. You yeah, know, there's there's dramatic aspects to it. Um, 
Uh, so I don't know. That kind of stuff's cool and exciting to me. Yeah, I always like that when other filmmakers do it too, like sure. the Coen Brothers and stuff. You know, I like how you can never put them in a, a specific genre. Or even when you see a trailer and you're like, oh, this movie's going to be like that. Like I remember when I saw the um, Lewin Davis trailer, I was like, oh, it's going to be, this is exactly what this movie's going to be. And then it's so different than the way I thought it was going to be. It was yeah. like closer to Serious Man or something. Yeah. It was really cool. I, so I was wondering, but the, he mentioned the, the horror stuff. It seems to me that like the, the, the horror and the comedy stuff shares some of the same like it it works because it feels real like rules do you, do you guys even think about that stuff when you're writing like in terms of what genre it's in uh, I don't know I mean I, I felt like in a way I felt like I could be totally off on this you correct me Dave but I feel like you're thinking about the audience in both of them. Yeah. And so you're also thinking about, like, a reaction, a specific reaction that the audience needs to give you in comedy, you know? So you might hold back on a joke here so you can get a bigger laugh, you know, 30 seconds later. And with horror, it kind of felt like that was a similar thing. You're trying to uh, you're trying to pace the scares. You're trying to make sure that nope, too much time hasn't gone by without a scare. And you think about that with comedy. I felt like writing... I felt like writing horror was easier than writing comedy, but and I wasn't involved in the editing much on Halloween, but I felt like the post-process of horror to me seemed trickier than the post-process of comedy because I feel like you can – in a comedy, I can watch – Edie or John Goodman or Adam Devine make a joke, and it will make me laugh every time I see it in the edit room. Yeah. But then once you know where – where Michael Myers is going to jump out from, <laughs> it becomes hard to like, Is will this be scary? Are people going to know that this is here? It seems like it's a little harder to have that fresh perspective on it once you kind of know what's coming. That's really interesting. Was the post-process on Halloween instructive in that way, or was it was it weird to go through that? Totally weird to go. I mean, just to add to a little bit of what Danny said, I think that the setup and payoff of comedy and horror is very similar. To have that audience trigger pulled, you know, like to have that reaction that you want to have in 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 mass to ha- I think the setup and payoff is really valuable and then the production process on a horror movie is far from scary especially working with all these cool dorks that we hang out with <laughs> so, so you're always just thinking like well I assume when you put scary music on it and yeah. like, uh, if John, John Carpenter shows up then he's gonna do his thing and it'll be scary I'm sure. but you don't really know because as Danny says you know where the surprises are right. we've engineered them we've we've prepared for all of it so um, it's very valuable to show it to an audience and to get it up on its feet and put a, you know, put a cut together that I like. But I don't really know what's going to startle somebody because it's it's impossible to not have been aware of it. So uh, it, it just became great just to get, get groups. Sometimes it'd be 10 people. Sometimes it'd be a couple hundred people. You'd just get groups of people together and, sh- and show it and figure out, well, hey, if we do we want suspense here or do we want uh, a jump scare? Sure. You know? It's, it's, I remember I was watching like one of the, I think this has come up on this podcast, like probably at least a hundred times is the, one of the great YouTube videos is the blooper reel from season one of Eastbound. <laughs> and it's partially cause you guys are fucking crying through like half of the, like the Will Ferrell scenes. You're just like, like obviously having aneurysms because you're trying to stay straight. But I was curious about what the sets are like for you guys and, like, bringing in an Adam Devine or bringing in a John Goodman who you haven't worked with before. Like, what are kind of, like... I mean, Adam's obviously worked on Workaholics. I feel like that's almost, like, a weird, like, West Coast mirror of what you guys were doing for a little while. Like, how do you guys, like, indoctrinate people into how the sets are and, like, how you guys like to play? 
You know, it's like a lot of the, there's a lot of familiar faces on our set. You know, we use a lot of the same, not only are there key positions like Richard Wright, who's our production designer, Chris Gebert, who does uh, our production sound. Those guys we all went to college with, we're all there. We've, we all knew each other when we didn't have gray hair. Like everybody, you know, has known each other for a while. And then because we've shot regionally in North Carolina, South Carolina for a long time now, all, a lot of the crew that's just there have become like family. So I think it's instantly a vibe mm-hmm. of that support. And when we cast, I think it's a big part of what we look for. It's, you know, it's not only are they going to be good, but, like, do we want to, like, be around them? Do they seem like they would have fun on this and, and uh, you know, and understand what, what this needs to be in order to make it all work? And uh, so then we have someone like John Goodman who's, like, you, you know, you're not going to, you know, sit there and, like, audition John Goodman. It's <laughs> yeah. either he's in or he's out. Uh, you know, and he's a, a hero of ours. So, it would you know, you just take a, a swing and just, like, you pray for the best. The, uh, the, the I watched the first three episodes so far of Gemstones, and I will say that one of my favorite things in a TV season is when, like, something happens in the middle. Not even necessarily plot, but it just, like, really jumps up a notch. And when Goggin shows up in this season, you're just like— <laughs> Oh shit! Like, <laughs> it's like Baby Billy is here. It's just, was that? How much of that is Goggins? How much of that is you guys? Like, it's I mean, just an amazing. He, he's a, Goggins is a force, you know, and, uh, and he's you know he's one of the best people I know. He's such a sweet guy, and but as an actor, I just like love him. I love. Uh, we we tend to really enjoy the actors who can like destroy drama and be funny as fuck as well. It's yeah. like it, that stuff. Those actors tend to work well with the kind of stories we tell, and so. With Baby Billy, there was just an image I had of of just Walton playing an old man. I thought that there was something about it that would just. <laughs> but he be still kind of looks like Ric Flair. He does. <laughs> he does <that> vibe. <laughs> Everything is about Ric Flair. <laughs> but uh, and so it was just. I mean, you know, I remember when Walton came and we did like a makeup test on him and shit. I just could not stop laughing looking at the pictures of him. And uh, so yeah, we just wanted to. You know, he's such a talent. He's so awesome. We wanted to just if he was going to show up for us and be in this, we wanted to give him something to do that was going to be pretty fun. Whoever and, the costume designers on the show deserves like like a huge bonus. Like even like his, Goggins' is slacks. Yeah. They're yeah. like like in like the double-breasted suit with the yeah. turtleneck. That's, that's Sarah Tross. She was our costume designer on Vice Principals as well. She's brilliant. Yeah. She's, she's so so good. I'll wrap it up here. You talk about Gemstones being sort of like the conclusion, I guess, of a, a trilogy of misunderstood angry man shows. Like did you envision this as like – a trilogy necessarily, or was it just like I want to keep making stuff in this vein? Or we, I think when we when I first said that, I think we were just like you got, you got we were just bu- we were just bullshitting, <laughs> trying to make HBO feel like they needed to pick this up, like yeah. somehow it was part of a conclusion. But I think now that we've made it, I think it honestly transcends the other shows we are making in the sense that the world is so big in this, and our other shows are so centered around usually the character that I play. And this, I just feel like it's centered around this family. I feel like it's just much bigger than what we've done before. And so I think it's like, you know, I guess you could you could frame it up as the the, the beginning of a trilogy or this could just be a, a, a brand new chapter in a whole new, you know, creative realm for us. But you guys got kind of like, you were you're like, oh yeah, it's part of the trilogy. And then yeah, it's that's like, how we're shit. selling HBO. Like, come on, of course you got to pick this up. Like, this is the yeah. uh, end of the, of the, of the like man the trilogy that we're George doing. It's George R.R. Martin universe, but it's just like a slightly different spin. Well, look, Jody, David, Danny, thank you so much for coming on The Watch, man. Uh, I'm such a huge fan, and people should really check out Gemstones when it drops. It's hilarious. Thank you so, so much. Thanks so much. Thanks, guys. Yeah, appreciate it.